It was late winter of 1939. The territorial expansions of Nazi Germany had brought Europe to the boiling point. World War II would soon begin. Scientists in the USA, Szilard, Bohr, and others, had seen the discoveries about uranium fission and realized that this could possibly provide the mechanism for a nuclear chain reaction. The scientists were immediately struck with fear that the enormous energy of the atom could be harnessed within a bomb and then could be used by Nazi Germany to destroy all resistance to their expansions and thereby dominate the world. Enrico Fermi, the brilliant Italian physicist who featured so prominently in our previous episode, was already a Nobel laureate when he was selected by the other scientists in the United States to brief the American military of the possibility of a new superweapon, an atomic bomb. Surely, they thought, the military would listen and take appropriate warning from a Nobel laureate and such a great scientist as Professor Fermi. The following event took place a few years before Fermi built the first man-made nuclear reactor in that squash court of a gymnasium at the University of Chicago. One of the scientists, who was in correspondence with Zillard and Fermi, was personally acquainted with the Undersecretary of the Navy and gave him a call. The Undersecretary was too busy to meet Fermi in person himself, but arranged to have one of his admirals meet the great scientist instead. So one afternoon, Dr. Fermi arrived at the Navy Department at the National Mall of Washington, D.C., and entered the office of Admiral Hooper, and introduced himself to a junior-grade military officer who was the Admiral's desk clerk. As Dr. Fermi waited for his appointment, the desk clerk stood up and walked into the Admiral's office, and Fermi overheard him say, Quote, there's a WAP outside. Needless to say, the meeting didn't go very well after that, and it would be a few more months before the U.S. government would finally move itself into action. This marked the beginning of the Manhattan Project, the massive scientific and military effort that would result in the successful creation of nuclear weapons. E is equal mc squared showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. raised by an affluent family in a spacious apartment in New York City. His parents were respectable and formal. They were non-practicing Jews, and in fact, the boy regarded his Jewish heritage with disdain and embarrassment. His father, an amiable man anxious to please everyone, made a lucrative business from importing textiles for formal men's suits. The boy's overly protective mother raised him and his younger brother, 
with the goal of sheltering them from any possible harm or distress. The boy was socially awkward, frail, and sickly, and she, his mother, prevented him from playing in the streets with the other children, insisting instead that he occupy his time indoors and away from others, collecting minerals, writing poems, and playing with blocks. The boy was allowed no outlet for any sort of bad behavior, and would later be described by himself as overly well-behaved, to an almost sickening degree. When his parents finally consented at sending him away to camp, his morally precious, highly intelligent, and physically underdeveloped qualities inevitably attracted torment from the other boys, until he had to be rescued by his parents and brought home. At that summer camp, the boy surmised that he had finally learned the truth, that the world was ultimately a dark, cruel place. The other boys at the summer camp had called him Cutie, but the little boy's real name was Julius Robert Oppenheimer. In life, he went by the name Robert, but would eventually be affectionately called Oppie by the armies of scientists under his direction. Finally, at the age of 18, his father intervened in the young man's overprotection and arranged for Robert to spend a summer at a guest ranch in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, a few miles north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Here, for the first time, the sheltered boy was set free. He learned to work cattle and ride horses. He began taking pack horse trips high into the mountain ranges of New Mexico, exploring its isolated wildernesses. On one of these pack trips, young Robert was riding near a large caldera of a dormant volcano and visited a rocky canyon called Los Alamos, which is Spanish for the Cottonwoods. Robert and his brother would later buy a primitive cabin there, along with six acres of land, and occasionally would visit the remote site when they needed spiritual restoration. By the end of summer, the boy had gone from pale and sickly to tanned and strong, and at least to some extent his faith in the positive purpose of life was restored. Robert entered Harvard University that fall. Although he excelled in his classes, Robert was still an aimless, insecure, and unformed man. He was afraid of making any mistakes, and was crippled with an overwhelming sense of guilt. Nevertheless, he worked non-stop and graduated in three years. He applied to work for the famous scientist, Dr. Ernest Rutherford in Cambridge, England, the man who discovered the atomic nucleus. But Robert was rejected. Instead, he worked for Rutherford's mentor, Dr. J.J. Thompson, who had discovered the electron. Sadly, he did not flourish there, as Thompson focused on experimentation, and Robert's physical awkwardness and theoretical mind did not thrive in that environment. His lab work was not successful, and neither were his tentative overtures to attract female attention. He would later admit that he had even contemplated suicide at this low ebb of his young life. It wasn't until a provincial conversation with the friendly and encouraging Professor Niels Bohr that Oppenheimer chose to abandon the business of experimental science altogether, and to focus exclusively on theoretical physics, his true strength. We will return later to discuss his destiny. After Liza Meitner and Otto Hahn's discovery of nuclear fission, Leo Zillard, who had first conceived the idea of a nuclear chain reaction on that fateful crosswalk years before, immediately realized that fission could provide the mechanism for such a nuclear chain reaction. Szilard eventually told Niels Bohr, 
Enrico Fermi, and several other scientists about this possibility. Bohr and Fermi were both refugee scientists, living in the United States by this time. The other scientists reacted with some initial skepticism against Szilard's idea, but Bohr and Fermi were intrigued. After all, naturally occurring uranium seemed to exist for long periods of time within the Earth without ever undergoing a chain reaction. Szilard and the others immediately set to work on experiments to determine if a chain reaction might be possible. It was known by this time that uranium came in at least two isotopes, uranium-238 and uranium-235. After some initially confusing experiments, it was Bohr's amazing insight that perhaps low-energy neutrons initiated fission in uranium-235 only, while uranium-238 absorbed low-energy neutrons but did not undergo fission. But even if this were true, the scientists weren't sure how many neutrons were released during the uranium fission process. If only zero or one neutrons were produced by a splitting nucleus, then that would not be enough neutrons to sustain a nuclear chain reaction. However, two or more neutrons would be enough. Through careful experiments, Szilard and the researchers eventually discovered that indeed at least two neutrons were released by the fission of a uranium nucleus. It was at this moment when the scientists realized that they had better inform the American government about their discovery, for all at once it seemed conceivable that an atomic bomb might be possible to construct. The American government and military were slow on the uptake, causing the small cadre of scientists to debate whether to publish their results in the academic literature. I am, in fact, a scientist by profession, and I have a PhD in chemistry, so you can take it from me when I tell you that academic scientific research is a very open enterprise, and relies on the complete honesty and transparency of the researchers, that they report their results in full, both good and bad. Professor Fermi and the others felt that this openness was not only essential for the successful advancement of research itself, but also contributed to an international openness, which both provided an example to all nations, and perhaps even helped to promote international peace. However, Szilard and the others feared that in fact openness with such dangerous information might inform Hitler's Germany to the feasibility of an atomic bomb, and allow them to obtain it before the Allies. The military advantage of such a weapon could forever seal the fate of the world. They knew that under such an outcome, Nazi nuclear weapons would thereafter rain down upon their homelands, and the entire free world would be scoured by flames of fire. While still debating the ethics of disclosure, their decision was made for them when, in France, Marie Curie's daughter Irene and her husband Frédéric Joliot published results that stated that three or maybe even more neutrons were released by uranium fission. cat was out of the bag. Now everyone from Hitler to Mussolini to Stalin to Hirohito knew about the feasibility and mechanism of an atomic bomb. Upon the revelation of uranium fission and its release of neutrons available for a chain reaction, the published research in this area went silent among the nations of the world. Germany immediately began hoarding uranium and banned its export, quickly starting their own atomic bomb project. Even the New York Times eventually wrote a story which informed the American public about the possibility of an atomic bomb based on uranium fission.
Zillard and the other scientists knew that they had to inform the American government about the full seriousness of the possibility of atomic bombs. Yet their first tries had been unsuccessful, and Fermi was discouraged by his visit to Admiral Hooper, and had already shifted his entire attention back to research. Then Zillard heard that his old friend Albert Einstein was in the area, staying in a summer home on a lake in Nassau Point, Long Island, in New York. By this time, Dr. Einstein was a world-famous scientist, with personal connections among world elites and heads of state. Dr. Einstein agreed to meet with Szilard, and the latter drove out to Einstein's summer home, where the great scientist took his leisure after a lifetime of excruciating mental deliberations. Professor Einstein was fond of small boat sailing, which kept him tanned and physically strong well into his old age. When Zillard sat down and told him about that chain reaction idea, Dr. Einstein interjected, crying, I never thought of that. But Einstein immediately saw the implications and put himself at the service of Zillard, willing to lend his voice to anyone who should be made aware of the possibility of an atomic bomb. Another of Zillard's contacts suggested reaching out to President Franklin Roosevelt directly. Both Zillard and Einstein approved of this bold plan, and together they drafted a letter which leveraged both Zillard's technical expertise and Einstein's credibility to capture the president's attention. They sent the letter to Roosevelt, who was, unfortunately, very busy at this time. Nazi Germany had just violated its treaty with the West by invading Poland. Western leaders faced the cold, hard truth that Hitler would never halt his conquests until he was stopped by force. Neville Chamberlain soon resigned as Britain's Prime Minister, humiliated that his overtures of appeasement of Germany proved naive and ineffective at preventing the rising threat, and Winston Churchill was nominated instead. France also mobilized for the war, and the two nations, France and Britain, immediately declared war on Germany, beginning the Second World War against Germany and the Axis powers. America initially remained neutral, though President Roosevelt was working hard to move Congress into action to economically assist Britain and France. Therefore, the president was very busy and could not make time to receive and read the letter from Leo Szilard or even Albert Einstein. Finally, over a month later, a representative for the scientists walked into Roosevelt's office and explained the possibilities of releasing enormous quantities of energy from uranium fission. The president immediately realized that if the free world didn't get atomic bombs first, then the Nazis surely would. This requires action, said the president. It is interesting that a political figure, and not the military, grasped this application of nuclear fission in military terms and its implications for war. The civilian politician identified the importance of nuclear technology before high-ranking military officers could imagine its potential. Roosevelt authorized his aides to assemble a committee of scientific and military authorities to provide resources for the scientists to investigate whether nuclear power or nuclear weapons could be built. Let us consider the calculus involved as the nations of the world, most notably America, chose to pursue research into nuclear weapons. The refugee scientists had experienced the aggression and brutality of the Nazis firsthand, and their great fear, which American leadership soon came to appreciate, was that the Nazis would obtain the bomb first. The scientists recognized that one atomic bomb would have the power to destroy an entire city at the very least. Its release of energy would be so great that no defense could withstand its destruction. They knew that Hitler and the Nazis would, of course, have no qualms about using the bomb against any target, 
either military or civilian, if it would suit their aims. Now put yourself in the following situation. Imagine that you are in a conflict, and your opponent is, literally, Hitler. I imagine that you would realize that if he possessed a powerful weapon against which you had no defense, then you would assume that he would not hesitate to use it against you, to destroy you with impunity. Therefore, your only recourse would be to obtain that weapon first, because if you did, he wouldn't have a defense either. Then if he ever gained that weapon, but you already had one, then if he valued his existence, he wouldn't dare to use it against you, because if he did, then you would use yours against him, and you would both be destroyed. Therefore, you would have a stalemate, because the use of that weapon by either side results in the destruction of both sides. This is the essence of the Doctrine of Mutually Assured Destruction, or MAD, MAD. The only defense against an enemy with a nuclear weapon is to have a nuclear weapon yourself, and the willingness to use it. For many of these scientists, especially the refugees who had fled from authoritarian regimes, they felt that unless they intervened with their expertise to develop these weapons, then freedom could be lost from the entire world. As I mentioned before, the Germans did start their own atomic bomb project, led by Werner Heisenberg. They attempted to use heavy water instead of graphite to build a reactor to produce plutonium, another fuel that can be used instead of uranium. While Zillard and Fermi waited for Roosevelt's committee to move forward, Heisenberg had already begun the design of a nuclear reactor and directed shipments of uranium from the mountains of recently conquered Czechoslovakia and from recently conquered Belgium. German scientists knew that uranium-235 could be used for nuclear reactors and also weapons, and began enriching uranium-235. What scientific equipment they didn't yet have, they stole from French universities after invading France. The German efforts were ultimately unsuccessful, because Norwegian and British commandos were able to destroy the Germans' only source of heavy water, a hydroelectric dam in Norway. When the Allies ultimately prevailed over the Germans, they found one half-assembled nuclear reactor, years away from being functional. But that insight was not known until after the war was over. But during the entire war, the refugee and American scientists of the Manhattan Project assumed that the Germans were always ahead of them in the race to obtain an atomic bomb. Therefore, the Americans worked with hell-bent obsession to avoid nuclear holocaust, as the mad doctrine offered the only protection against a Nazi atomic bomb. It's also worth noting that several other nations began their own Manhattan projects, including Japan and Russia. However, none of them advanced nearly as far or as quickly as the Americans during the span of the war. In fact, Stalin dismissed atomic weapons almost completely until the successful Trinity test, when the first atomic bomb was detonated.
The American military authorities, at first, exhibited skepticism for the idea of atomic bombs, even bordering on mockery. The slowness and inefficiency of government bureaucracy and the temporary blindness of the military delayed the advancement of the atomic bomb project almost interminably, much to the scientists' frustration. But the scientists, along with the president's endorsement, moved the project slowly forward, gathering resources and manpower. The scientists ran what experiments they could to demonstrate the likelihood of a successful chain reaction. The first factor, which caused the Manhattan Project to leap forward into full motion, was the completion of Chicago Pile 1, the first man-made nuclear reactor by Enrico Fermi and others mentioned in our previous episode. The second factor, which allowed the initiative to leap into full motion, was the appointment of General Groves as the military leader of the Manhattan Project. Leslie Richard Groves had spent his early military career in the Army Corps of Engineers and was responsible for procuring the resources, personnel, and logistics needed to accomplish large building projects. He'd spent the first few years of World War II in Washington, wrangling and prodding the massive, overbloated federal bureaucracy into getting his assigned projects accomplished. By the time he was appointed to lead the Manhattan Project, the general was sick of being in Washington. He wanted to be reassigned overseas to lead troops in combat areas where he felt that he could make a true difference in the war. When he was approached by his superiors and assigned to lead yet another project stateside, he bristled internally, but without the choice to refuse, he accepted the position. As I read about General Groves, I imagine him as the quintessential general, very cranky, but also a very competent organizer. His personality was highly abrasive, yet you could always expect him to get the job done, and get it done right. One of his inferiors described him with grudging admiration, calling him, quote, the biggest son of a I've ever met in my life, but also one of the most capable individuals, end quote. With General Groves at the helm, the Manhattan Project lurched into motion. The scientists soon found all the funding and materials they would need to accomplish their experiments successfully. One of General Groves' first actions was to appoint J. Robert Oppenheimer as the scientific director of the Manhattan Project. By now, Robert Oppenheimer had matured and found his place in the larger world. Although he never quite accomplished such significant personal research, in fact, fewer than many scientists working on the project had, but he had made a name for himself internationally as a highly capable theoretical physicist and had become a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Despite his brilliance, Professor Oppenheimer was an imperfect, flawed individual. He had become involved with communist groups that were sympathetic to the Stalinist dictatorships of the Soviet Union, which later caused him enormous problems during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. By this time, Robert had overcome his initial insecurities with women and overcompensated for them. Although he was married with a young son, he was a notorious womanizer, even attempting to seduce the wives of his associates. On one occasion, Professor Oppenheimer was collaborating with someone who is perhaps the greatest chemist to ever live, and two-time Nobel laureate, Linus Pauling. The collaboration was successful and prolific until Oppenheimer attempted to seduce Professor Pauling's wife, Eva, inviting her to take a tryst with him down to Mexico for a few weeks. Eva said, no and then told Linus. 
who immediately terminated the collaboration and refused to work with Oppenheimer ever again. His flaws aside, Professor Oppenheimer's greatest strength was his breadth of knowledge. Over the years, he had managed to obtain a deep experience and capacity to absorb information on a variety of scientific topics related to the project, ranging from nuclear physics to quantum mechanics to the latest experimental techniques to metallurgy to explosives. Therefore, as the director of the Manhattan Project, Professor Oppenheimer had the intellectual capacity to keep the entire project in his head. He could walk from one sub-project to the next, helping the scientists with technical challenges and pesky details, all while keeping each facet of the project coordinated to reach the final goal. In short, he was the perfect man for the job. With Professor Oppenheimer's help, General Grove set to work finding suitable sites for the project. They needed an isolated location, with a vast space of land far from the prying eyes of civilization, preferably with a temperate climate suitable for outdoor experiments and construction projects. The best location turned out to be the Los Alamos Mesa in New Mexico, the same place that Robert Oppenheimer rode horses through the hills and woods as a young man years before. I've been to Los Alamos, New Mexico. The lab is now a highly secure military base with a town nearby and a vast surrounding wilderness stretching over the slopes and caldera of an extinct volcano. The view from the top of the mesa is spectacular, and you can see the vast plain of the desert, and in the distance, the old city of Santa Fe, as well as the beautiful Sangre de Cristo Mountains. The area was once the cradle of a Native American Indian population, and their ruins and petroglyphs can be found in many locations around the mesa. I told you earlier that there are two relevant types, or isotopes, of uranium nuclei, uranium-235 and uranium-238. I also told you that uranium-235 was the only isotope that could be used for a chain reaction, and that uranium-238 would absorb a neutron, getting in the way, and preventing that neutron from propagating a chain reaction. But that's actually not the whole story. When uranium-238 gets hit by a neutron, it becomes uranium-239 which will not undergo fission. However, it can decay by emitting an electron. This will convert the uranium, element number 92, into neptunium, element number 93. Then that can decay again, becoming plutonium, element number 94. Plutonium, like uranium-235, can undergo fission and can therefore be used to build an atomic bomb. Plutonium does not occur naturally it undergoes fission too quickly. Plutonium must be produced artificially in a breeder reactor, where copious neutrons can begin the cascade of decays from uranium-238. So why bother building a bomb using plutonium when you can just build one out of uranium-235? The answer is uranium-235 is very, very difficult to separate from uranium-238, because as isotopes, they have essentially identical chemistry. In contrast, because uranium and plutonium are different elements, the two can be much more easily and cheaply separated using chemical means. This was the approach that Heisenberg was pursuing in Nazi Germany. By building a series of breeder reactors, they hoped to generate sufficient plutonium in order to build a bomb. 
Upon the discovery of plutonium by the American scientist Glenn Seaborg, the Manhattan Project also began pursuing the new element as a potential explosive. Seaborg and his researchers would assist by perfecting the chemical techniques to separate plutonium from uranium and other impurities, and would then go on to discover several other elements after the war. As I mentioned before, the leaders of the Manhattan Project were very, very worried that the Nazis might obtain an atomic bomb first. So the Americans and the refugees dead set on obtaining a bomb as quickly as possible and were willing to spare no expense. If there were several possible approaches, the American government would hire people to try them all and was willing to pay for any potentially successful idea to move forward full steam ahead. Two other additional laboratory and industrial sites were procured by the General for the Manhattan Project. A site at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which would be used as the site for uranium enrichment, that is, the separation of the 235 isotope from the 238 isotope. Here the Army Corps of Engineers would build enormous facilities with many buildings, each larger than a Costco, filled with industrial ducts and mechanisms to purify a cantaloupe-sized lump of the precious isotope, ultimately. The other site was Hanford, Washington, where the breeder reactors would produce plutonium and remote-controlled machinery would process and purify the radioactive material. At each of these sites, thousands and tens of thousands of workers were hired in the midst of a wartime labor shortage to build and operate the factories, power plants, water purification plants, reactors, electromagnetic separators, and centrifuges to produce the materials for a bomb. Additionally, each of the sites would practically become functioning civilian cities in order to support these large populations of workers, complete with houses, apartments, roads, pipes, power lines, post offices, recreation centers, saloons, and cafeterias. The sheer magnitude of people and resources now dedicated to the project astonished the scientists, as the size and scope of the project boggled their minds and surpassed their wildest dreams. Professor Oppenheimer began visiting research universities and their cohorts of scientists all across the country, inviting hundreds of them to come to Los Alamos. General Grove set to work building the base and laboratories at the secret New Mexico location. They raised barbed-wired fences, houses for the families, and barracks for the singles. Upon arrival, the scientists received the Los Alamos Primer, a 25-page document that outlined the goals and purpose of the project. By this point, the scientists and engineers had converged on two designs for an atomic bomb, both of which would be developed simultaneously. They were codenamed Little Boy and Fat Man. Little Boy was designed as a device akin to a six-foot-long tubular gun barrel in which a nitrocellulose propellant would ignite and fire an enriched uranium-235 slug into a matching piece of enriched uranium assembling a critical mass of 64 kilograms, about 10 times the weight of a bowling ball. Within the uranium slug, a neutron initiator would release large quantities of neutrons and ignite the nuclear chain reaction. In order to understand the explosive power of an atomic bomb, we compare the release of energy to the weight in tons of exploding TNT. Now, TNT is a military explosive used in grenades, among other things. One ton of TNT is about how much of this explosive a single pickup truck could carry. 
So imagine the explosion that could be created by a pickup truck loaded with grenades. Little Boy, the uranium bomb, was capable of releasing about 15,000 tons equivalent of TNT. So imagine that one pickup truck full of TNT and unloading it. Then imagine 15,000 pickup truck loads of TNT all dumped into one huge pile and then setting it off. That's how much energy would be released by Little Boy. Little Boy would not be challenging to build. The biggest challenge with Little Boy was to accumulate enough enriched uranium to sustain an explosive chain reaction. For this purpose, square mile after square mile of centrifuges and electromagnetic separators hummed night and day, along with thousands of workers, to generate sufficient enriched uranium for the weapon. In contrast, Fat Man, the second design, codenamed the Gadget, would be powered by plutonium. Fat Man, as the name suggests, was larger and rounder than Little Boy. And at the very center, a subcritical plutonium sphere the size of a watermelon was encased around a small object called a neutron initiator. Surrounding this plutonium sphere would be wedges of conventional explosives designed to create a larger sphere about 5 feet, or 1.5 meters, in diameter. This assembly would then be further enclosed in metal casing for the final bomb assembly, which would explode with power equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT, slightly more than for Little Boy. The plutonium for Fat Man would need to be bred in a breeder reactor, similar to Chicago Pile 1, the crude one designed by Fermi and Zillard. The plutonium would then be chemically extracted and cast into its final spherical shape. Now, the reason they chose the code names Fat Man and Little Boy came from the fact that they originally thought that the uranium bomb would need to be 18 feet long in order for the uranium slug to accelerate to enough velocity to ensure a high-yield explosion. This bomb's name was Thin Man. They originally coined these code names when discussing how to prepare the bomber aircraft to carry such a large payload. The military counterintelligence officers hoped that the enemy might confuse the Fat Man and Thin Man code names with Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt, respectively. Later, when the Thin Man design was modified to be only six feet long, the project changed its code name to Little Boy. The design and materials for the two bomb types were completed at approximately the same time. The scientists were fairly confident that the Little Boy design would work and did not feel that a test would be necessary before it was used. However, the Fat Man design was sufficiently speculative that they felt the need to test it. Thus they felt compelled to complete a test of the device, called the Trinity Test, resulting in the ignition of a gadget replica in the desert of New Mexico. In a large dry desert valley within the White Sands Missile Range, north of Alamogordo, New Mexico, the army assembled a large metal tower, 100 feet tall, about 30 meters. This was to mimic the high altitude detonation of Fat Man when it would be dropped from a bomber. If the bomb was ignited high in the air, then the maximum amount of damage could be inflicted to the area directly below the explosion. The gadget was hoisted to the top of the tower and armed. A few days later, 
in the dark pre-dawn hours of June 16, 1945, the scientists and military observers gathered at various watch posts in the surrounding countryside to witness the test. Most of the scientists stood on a mountain ridgeline 20 miles away. The scientists began to take bets and wagers among themselves about whether the test would work. One person bet the bomb would yield an optimistic 45 kilotons, or 45,000 tons, while others, including Oppenheimer, suspected that it would be a dud, exploding with less than one kiloton, or perhaps not exploding at all. In a burst of macabre humor, Fermi offered to take bets that the bomb would ignite a chain reaction in the atmosphere and asked the surrounding scientists whether the burning atmosphere would incinerate the entire state or spread to incinerate the entire world. However, since they were pretty sure that this wouldn't happen, the test proceeded as planned. The scientists and observers armed themselves with long sleeves and dark sunglasses and slathered sunscreen onto any exposed skin to protect against ultraviolet radiation. Just before full sunrise, at approximately 5.30 in the morning, the bomb exploded. First, there came a bright white flash that temporarily blinded all the people who hadn't covered their eyes. The flash lit up the sky and the nearby mountains as bright as noonday. The base camp, a full 10 miles away, became as hot as an oven. Then the shock wave ripped across the ground, kicking up dust, and the people heard the rolling sound of thunder. But unlike thunder from a normal storm, this thunder kept rolling rolling. The sound echoed off the rocks and mountains and did not subside for a very long time. The spectators watched in awe as the fireball became a rising mushroom cloud with flashes of purple, green, orange, and white fire rising into the sky. The rain clouds in the sky above the explosion rushed away and disappeared. People who lived in the outlying desert many miles distant arose from their beds at the flash of light. One farmer recalls telling his wife, quote, Wake up, honey, the sun is rising from the wrong direction, end quote. In the days that followed, the radioactive fallout from the Trinity test came down with the rain. Cattle and other animals that were exposed to the fallout had their hides and fur turned white permanently. All around the explosion site for several hundred meters, the desert sand had melted and reformed into radioactive green glass. The metal of the 100-foot-tall Trinity Tower had been vaporized, leaving nothing but the reinforcement rebar that had been sunk into the ground below for structural support. For the rest of their lives, the observers of the Trinity Test would never forget what they beheld in those early pre-dawn hours of June 16, 1945. The effect of what they experienced would remain with them for their entire lives. The sights, sounds, and feel of so much power, so much energy being released all at once, had a profound psychological effect on the scientists, and many of them agreed that they were never the same since. Most of the scientists were filled with dread upon beholding the full nature of their creation. They experienced mixed feelings. They were glad that their hard work succeeded and that their project had been proven successful. But the scientists soon realized that they had no control over how the bombs would be used. They had no control or influence over how their fabrication would be utilized. That decision fell entirely upon the American political and military authorities. Many, but not all, of the scientists would watch with horror as the outcome of their efforts unfolded in history. 
Eventually, during the Cold War, they also realized and feared that their invention might even cause the destruction of the entire human race. Not long after the Trinity test, Professor Oppenheimer would commemorate the test's outcome with a quote from the Hindu religious book, the Bhagavad Gita. Quote, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, end quote. At first he said it victoriously, but in the years that followed, would repeat it in a tone of sorrow. Next time on The Atomic Bomb, the war in the Pacific rages on, badly at first for the Americans, and then increasingly successful due to the industrial might and the mounting strength of the American military. The Allied policy of unconditional surrender commits the Americans to seeing the conflict through to its bloody, bitter end. Soon only the Japanese home islands remain controlled by the enemy, and the Allied leadership is faced with a dilemma. Either begin an all-out invasion of the Japanese homeland with the brutal carnage of possibly millions of deaths, or to use the new atomic weapons in the hopes that it will force a Japanese surrender. Millions of lives are at stake, and based on the decisions made in a moment, the Allied leaders would be judged by their descendants and the rest of the world for millennia to come. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb Podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Lane Vitopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vitopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username, Elvatopka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. Copyright, Lane Vitopka, 2021.